We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Brooklyn Lustician and I am here with Natalie Smatis. Hey, how's it going? In today's episode, we are joined by Hadi Chapardar. Dr. Chapardar is currently a faculty member at the School of Business. During his academic professional career, he has experienced various areas of management and business, starting his professional career in operations, quality management, and marketing. He is later attracted to the intersection of strategy and sustainability. His field of focus on the complexities of marrying sustainability and business. In his capacity as a C-suite executive consultant and instructor, he has worked with small and large companies in various industries. As an instructor, he has taught numerous courses to both practitioners and students, including graduate level courses on strategy and sustainability at the University of Toronto and Wilfrid Laurier University. Thank you for joining us today. I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, I think we're just going to get started with, can you explain to us a little bit about your field of research? Absolutely. Such a pleasure to be here. Um, so broadly speaking, as you mentioned, my area of research is in the intersection of sustainability and sustainable development and business. So business is part of the society. And sustainable development is a very uh, comprehensive concept. So definitely business is part of this transition to a sustainable world. But this transition is not as straightforward because uh, there are lots of challenges in doing that. Businesses have evolved in a way that they are, they, you know, we see a business as a profit-making entity. And this profit-making is sometimes in contradiction with taking care of the ecology and the society and other right, things. Yeah. Well, if we go back to a few centuries ago, organizations were shaped to serve the society and provide welfare to the entire society. But this over time changed because of some, well, let's not start that conversation. <laughs> but essentially now and today, uh, businesses are more preoccupied with profit making. Right. Uh, so this conflict between uh, the two goals might be problematic in some cases. I try, uh, very broadly speaking, I try to understand these complexities and hopefully find better ways to respond to that. Um, talking about complexities, why do you think that companies choose profitability over sustainability? Well, companies are formed to generate profit, as I said. Every company has different uh, investors. Public companies may have different citizens as mm. investors, and private companies may have large investors. Either way, they are, they are supposed to satisfy these investors. Mm. So, And then when you consider the competition in the market, my company wants to be, for example, sustainable. But when I look at other companies and then I think about the cost of becoming more sustainable, in many cases, it's costly. And then I compare myself to those companies. Becoming sustainable means that my operational costs will increase. So I will need to either increase the price or reduce the profit. But I need to satisfy and keep my investors. Right, right? Yeah. So this is problematic 
And then, then the companies need to find ways to do this in a manageable way. Uh, I mean, financially manageable way. But it's not always possible. I can imagine it's uh, very costly in our world today to do anything. Absolutely. Um, before we kind of continued on talking, can you explain a little bit to us what it means to be sustainable or what sustainability really means? Well, what I um, generally refer to is the very first definition provided by, uh, by the United Nations uh, for sustainable development as a type of development which can meet the needs of human beings today without compromising the needs of future generations. Mm. And if you think about this concept, the, the, at the heart of this definition, there is an element of today and tomorrow, right, short-term yeah. and long-term, mm -hmm. and time. Uh, one of the leaders of this area who familiarized me with the concept of short-term and long-term, Dr. Timo Bansal, she was my supervisor when I was doing my PhD at Ivy Business School at Western University. And Timo is one of the biggest thinkers of the world in this area. So thinking long-term is very critical in being sustainable and becoming sustainable. And when we think about organizations, this time, the meaning of time is different for an organization compared to ecology, compared to human being. The life of a company might be as short as a few years. The life of a human being might be like 50, 60, 70 right, years. Yeah, much longer. Much longer. And then ecology, do you know these times, these time frames are silly when we think about the ecology yes. and the planet. It's literally nothing. So an organization is focused on short term. And this focus on short termism is problematic because sustainability mm. is essentially about thinking long term. Mm. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. I would say, too, like I even find um, as a younger generation, we are more working towards um, sustainability and working towards maybe like less consumption. Um, but I do find that it's kind of a battle right now with people in older generations, maybe even people of power, maybe even people running businesses. Um, lots of the time we now are like, we need to be sustainable in order to have a future, in order for our kids and their kids to have a future when older generations are more like, well, I'm not going to be around for that. And so it's it's lots of companies, lots of pro produce, lots of production. Um, and we were talking a little bit before about the clothing market. Do you think that consumers are to blame for the lack of sustainability? Well, this is a very good question, I think. <laughs> and I don't have a very immediate answer to that. But this raises one of my research themes, which is collective action. And collective action refers to actions which are voluntarily taken by different entities, different individual entities, mm. whether it's citizens or it's organizations. And our ability as people or organizations to join together, pool resources together towards a shared goal. Mm. And this uh, collective action is at the heart of many sustainability problems. As you said, it's very difficult to create some sort of consensus mm -hmm. across all citizens, all ages, and 
all of the different type of interests that we have right, yeah. to move in this direction. I think every single person in collective actions, every single person is responsible and the collective is also responsible. So I, um, and this is a very complicated and intricate uh, ethical problem. People in ethics discuss it very broadly. Um, we need to consider ourselves responsible in different ways. And we also need to think about the collective at the same time. Hmm. So as you said, many people, as they get older, they may become less sustainable, but we, ha we have evidence that many older people, because they have children and grandchildren, and they think about the welfare of the future generations, they become more sustainable as well. Okay. So many different things happen in this process of aging. Right. <laughs> I, I find that very interesting too, as well as clothing, as well as homes. I always find it crazy too that the amount of new homes that are being built and it seems like it's cheaper to buy a new home. Well, for some people, obviously, <laughs> not for university students. So it's cheaper for some people to buy a home than it is to buy an older home because of fixing it up, right? So just, yeah, it's wild how how kind of the world works in that way to benefit people rather than benefits the planet, which at the end will not benefit the people. Mm -hmm. Um. I'd like to talk a little bit about the circular model. Can you explain to us a little bit what that is? Absolutely. And both of the areas that you raised, housing and clothing, both are very relevant to this circularity. So we, uh, one of my areas of work, and I really love this area, is circular economy. And circular economy is basically about the idea that we are currently over-consuming natural resources. Uh, the, the amount of resources, material resources that we are using right now is about 1.7 times of what the planet can generate. And I'm talking about the average, like fossil fuels, renewable, non-renewable resources, all of them. Meaning that we are consuming the reservoir of resources on the planet. Mm. And this is obviously not sustainable. Yeah. You're not living anything for future generations. Like three decades ago when we were, t we were talking about future generations, it was like, oh, it's so far from today. Mm -hmm. But that is the, we are living in that future right mm -hmm. now. And I think your generation is feeling the problem much better than my generation was feeling in the past. Anyways, circular economy builds on finding remedies to prevent overconsumption and depletion of resources uh, and going beyond the regenerative capacity of the planet. So let me give you an example. Regenerative capacity means that if you go to a fishery and harvest fish more than a certain level, you will deplete the fishery over a few years. Right, yeah. It's not an infinite reservoir of resources. So we need to manage our catch of the fish every year. It is regenerative, but within a capacity. Hmm. So circular economy builds on this way of thinking and tries to find and suggest circular models and transition from a linear take, make, waste model to a circular model. Meaning that 
Traditionally, businesses were taking resources from the planet, making things from those materials, and then wasting them, sending them to the landfills. A used product was deemed dirty, unusable, but we need to change it. We need to make it circular and go and send the used products back to being reused. Mm-hmm. Or if we put it in a better way, we need to extend the life cycle of different products and materials. This can be done in different ways. The obvious, the first way to think about is recycling, which is one way it needs innovation technology. It might be costly in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Another way is to redesign the products that we are using and eliminating waste by in in the very early stages of designing a product. Other ways are sharing, for example. Sharing economy means that I have something, but you can also use it. So maybe we can find a mechanism to share it, like the model that companies such as Uber were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So broadly speaking, this is about circular economy. That also kind of makes me think, too, of like children's toys, for example. And like around Christmas time, Christmas comes, we use all the paper, we use all the plastic, all that, all the toys come in, a new toy every year. And then you go to like Valley Village and they sell big bags of them for like $5. Why are we not just recycling old toys? Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the first place, why are we buying all these toys? Mm -hmm. The average uh, material that an American citizen is consuming is five times more than what an average Mexican citizen consumes Mm. and 30 times more than what an average Indian citizen consumes. Mm. So the economic model, especially in North America and more in developed countries, is based on consumption. We enjoy consuming. Maybe there is part of us as human beings, which likes consumption. Mm -hmm. But maybe there are other ways to enjoy our lives without consuming what we don't need. 30 years ago, cars were made to like work for 30 years. Now a car is made to work for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Do we have alternatives to make this process, this life cycle sustainable? If we have an alternative, that's fine. If we don't, maybe we need to rethink the Mm -hmm. economic model. But it's very difficult, of course, to revise the economic model. Mm -hmm. Getting back to your point about fast fashion, we know that companies, many, I don't want to name any name and blame (laughs) any particular companies, but you can immediately recall companies with very cheap garment, which um, actually make clothes for single use. So you can't even wash those clothes. Mm -hmm. You pay a few dollars and buy a shirt or something and put it on and then send it to landfills. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is not sustainable. But whereas some citizens avoid this type of consumption, there are other citizens who enjoy this. So we, we should blame ourselves, but we also need to understand what is behind this pattern of behavior. If we manage to figure out these patterns in human behavior, in organization behavior, in the economic system, probably we can, we can somehow change the model and improve the situation. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. I was going to ask... Um, 
because I know my dad is really into like recycling and things, but um, he, sometimes he he says like, oh, we can't recycle that because the, the recycle depot doesn't take that. So how, like, I'm just wondering, I don't know, like how advanced is the recycling world? Um, do, you, do you know anything about that? <sighs> <laughs> That is the dark side of recycling, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. If you move uh, across cities in Canada, you see that recycling processes, technology, and the materials which can be recycled are significantly different. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, different municipalities and cities have a good reason for that, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's just an excuse not to recycle some materials which are already recycled in another city or another province. The fact is this technology is growing, it's evolving, and it's not as cheap as we think. Mm -hmm. Many products that we consider recyclable are not really recycled in reality. So for example, you see a campaign coming about recyclable uh, single-use cups, right? One company is doing this. So I, as a consumer, would say, okay, great. So I will go and use these uh, uh, single-use cups more and more. It's fine now. Mm -hmm. But if you go to a depot and speak to the operation manager of them, they will, they will tell you that no, it's just a very, very little portion mm -hmm. of the single-use cups. And then everything is changing. You know, different types of materials are coming in and used in different uh, products. So it's a very dynamic process. Mm -hmm. It's evolving. It's difficult to manage. I could imagine, yeah. The other thing that we need to consider is the concept of downcycling. So in many situations, recycling is not really recycling. It's mm -hmm. downcycling is going to be uh, changed to a lower value product. The ideal situation is upcycling mm -hmm. when you find a way to add value to mm -hmm. the recycled product. Companies that have started downcycling and that's kind of their value, their mission, their goals. Is it profitable having a business like that? That is one of the biggest challenges in sustainability because developing this technology is costly. Mm -hmm. And many companies, you know, with the short termism in the business environment that you can see, many companies prefer to avoid the uncertainties of investing in technology development and R&D, research and development. Mm. Innovation is by definition serendipitous. My company may invest in innovation processes and R&D, and we may get a result after five years or not. Mm. So how, to what extent I, as a manager, am willing to invest in this area Given that I have to publish quarterly reports and convince my investors that I'm a good manager, I'm making profit for them. So it's complex. You need to work with managers. You need to work with investors, with the entire society. Right, yeah. We need to have some carrot and stick mechanisms. You need to have policy in place to push companies invest in these areas. And this pressure should be harmonious. You can't push one industry and avoid pushing others. Mm -hmm. You can't push one company, one type of business and forget about the mm -hmm, others. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. 
even for policymakers to develop new policies. So part of my research, which puts together circular economy and collective action, which I just referred to both <laughs> of them, is about understanding how we can come up with policies to set a level playing ground and to um, encourage companies to invest in such expensive processes. Mm-hmm. I guess they need kind of a, an incentive to, to start doing that. So is that kind of, um, will a policy like offer an, an incentive to, to do that? Or like, do you have like um, ideas in mind of, of what kind of policies um, would look like? Well, that is a great question. And that is exactly where the problem exists. Because this is a new area and policymakers don't know how to answer. It's unexplored mm-hmm. or it was unexplored. So, for example, I have studied this uh, phenomenon in different provinces of Canada. For example, in Ontario, which was my f- main focus of research, in Ontario, the conversation about this process started back in 1980s. Mm. And then the governments tried to encourage companies to get involved in such processes and, you know, somehow collect their waste by the argument that, okay, waste is your responsibility. You are not just responsible to make something and sell it. You are, as a business, also responsible to take care of what you have made in the post-consumption phase. So this argument started back then but you can see how disruptive this idea might be back then. So it took a long time, and then policymakers, after one or two decades, figured out that just talking about it, just asking businesses to do that, does not provide that motive, mm-hmm. that level playing field for businesses to do this. Right. A company may prefer to do that. Other companies may not participate, and this is problematic. So they started to explore different types of policies. How can you force companies now to do that? And by trial and error, they came up with some ideas. The policy is getting better and better. It's absolutely necessary because becoming circular is costly. Companies do not have financial motivation to do that. Mm-hmm. So there should be something in place to provide a minimum level of pressure. And then there should be also mechanism like a carrot and stick policy type of thing to motivate companies who work better. Mm-hmm. You know, Then, like any other R&D activity done by businesses, business managers also consider R&D for recycling, for Mm -hmm. reusing, for sharing economy, and other things. Interesting. It's almost like they should get fined. (laughs) Every time they find, like, a Dasani water bottle in the ocean, you get fined a dollar. (laughs) Because then they'd be scared of losing money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or it's like uh, the um, pay your rent on time incentive where it's like, um, you get $100 off your <laughs> rent if you pay on time or something. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can probably tell, tell that this process was significantly fraught with tensions mm-hmm. yeah. between businesses and government, different mm-hmm. levels of government, provincial government, mm-hmm. municipalities. Each of these actors have different interests. Mm-hmm. Even municipalities have different wants. 
So it's so difficult to come up with an aggregated uh, set of interests which can make everybody satisfied right, yeah. and achieve the results that you're expecting. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of moving parts in this. So got to all make them work together and that's probably very difficult. Absolutely. But then the problem is that we, you, you see today that sustainability problem is becoming really an urgent issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we are feeling the impacts of unsustainability. Do we have time to really come up with these types of policies? So many activists believe that we need more aggressive policy. Mm-hmm. It always kind of makes me think too of like, I have lots of conversations with people talking about how oil and gas is not sustainable. And then they go, well, what else are people going to do? And we see all the time, oil goes up, oil goes down, people have jobs, people are unemployed. And to what point are we going to keep that going? Like, I always think, this is my sugar-coated solution, I always think, like, if we replace one thing, you have to put another thing there. And it does take mass amounts of research to figure out what can take the place of oil and gas. And many say nothing can, but at one point are we going to figure out something else? And to think like, okay, we take those jobs and maybe we give them training for a new job for a different source of energy. Do you think that could be profitable or are people just stuck in old ways and have fear of changing? Absolutely. Do you know one of the main investors in green energies are oil and gas companies? Oh, really? Yes. So it's a good progress. Yeah. And if you look back 50 years ago, now we have evidence that, that some of the giants in oil, oil and gas 50 years ago, they knew about global warming. Mm-hmm. They knew where we would be in 2020. But that was confidential information, and they were denying global warming back then. Mm -hmm. And this happened in the history. Fortunately, they are trying to somehow participate. They they know that this is the future. But if you speak with an activist in this area, they may raise the idea of urgency. They will say, we don't have time. You need to stop it. But when you look back at the society, sustainability is not just about environment. It's about environment and society and economy. So if people cannot meet their own needs today and just think about future, just just imagine. That is not sustainability too. So we cannot come up with a model and say, stop it today. Mm-hmm. Stop oil and gas in the stop mining right today. What will happen? It's just impossible mm-hmm. to imagine. But I can definitely feel the urgency and agree with the activists in these areas. So we need to push more pressure, probably. Mm-hmm. That's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the effects of extreme weather and what the wow. reaction is on the supply chains. Don't get me to start that. <laughs> so, well, one of the things that this generation is is observing directly is the frequency of extreme weather events. Right now, this year, we had several wildfires, Mm -hmm. several thunderstorms, floods, drought, and other things. Just think about the recent uh, 
news that the government of India stopped or announced that they are going to stop exporting rice. Yes, I saw that. And that created panic buying yeah. in Canada because people just, <laughs> of course, they, they are preparing to protect themselves. So they hoard rice now to, to be ready for this situation. Now, this Weather events, extreme weather events are becoming more and more frequent across the world, as you see in the news. Back 10 years ago, when scientists were talking about this phenomenon, many people were just reluctant to accept it. But we are living in that right now. And we can't go back in time. That is the sad reality about the ecology. We can't undo what we have done. Even if we stop everything today, every damage today, the planet will not go back. So we need to learn how to live with that, how to prevent more harm, and then how to respond to this situation. One of the areas that I am involved in research these years is about resilience in supply chains. The, the concept of resilience is very interesting. You hear it everywhere today in psychology and other things. Basically, it comes from system thinking and ecology. And it refers to the ability to adapt to the changes, to the shocks, and survive. Just let's take the example of COVID. Many companies after COVID just went bankrupt. But some companies survived. Mm -hmm. What can help a company survive and absorb these shocks. Resilience is recently explored in the context of organizations and business, including in supply chains. Just think about the aftermath of any of these extreme events. What will happen to the supply chain? What will happen to the consumers? The supply chains get disrupted. You cannot purchase what you were purchasing last year from mm -hmm. the same suppliers and it has many consequences and a lot of cost imposed on businesses and business is part of the society so the cost will be transferred to the society to the citizens mm -hmm. such as the increasing price of food in mm -hmm. canada in, mm -hmm. over the past couple of years so um, this concept of resilience in supply chain refers to four dimensions four characteristics. First of all, companies need to learn how to prepare for these events because we know that they happen more and more. Second, companies need to learn how to respond to these situations. Third, how to recover from the impacts of these situations. And finally, how to learn from this experience and enhance their systems and grow. And notice that this Extreme events are uncertain. We don't know when they happen. We, right, yeah. we don't know the, the severity of the event. Uh, so how a company can become ready for such catastrophes and reduce the costs and provide what they are supposed to provide to the society? This is the area that we are exploring in the context of food and retail industry mm -hmm. right now. Uh, with a few colleagues of mine from different universities in Canada. And it's an increasingly important part of sustainable development right, yeah. today. Um, do you have any advice for students or any of our listeners? Well, I would say one thing that all of us 
as citizens can do is always double thinking about the consequences of the actions that we are taking. For example, if a, co if a company manager is making a decision and the, they are making this trade-off between profit and the planet, maybe the profit part overweighs, but let's wait for a minute. Is there any opportunity for my company, any opportunity to invest for future development and longer-term thinking compared to the short-term profit that this decision makes? As a citizen, I may have the same uh, contemplation in my daily decision. If we practice this for just one day as a citizen, we will learn a lot about our behavior and that can change the society as well. Mm -hmm. That's very good advice. I like that. Just one day and see how the one day goes. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here today. It was great talking to you. The pleasure was mine. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to support this podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave us a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast, brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McCune University. Funding for the podcast is partially provided by the Government of Canada through the Research Support Fund. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Brooklyn Logician and Natalie Smattis. Music, sound design, and editing is by Natalie Smattis. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Brooklyn Logician. And our executive producer is Hugh McKenzie.